0: Today's episode is brought to you by our company, Sales Schema. Sales Schema helps agencies and B2B service companies build a reliable business development system through tasteful and targeted outreach. To learn more about us and check out our latest video training, go to saleschema.com
1: slash take charge. If I come up with a tagline for your website, for your business, that is encapsulates what you do perfectly, and it's just a work of, you know, it's just spot on, and you use it, but it just popped into my head while I was having a shower. Are you paying for the the five minutes of the shower? Are you paying for the 30 years of experience that allowed me to get there, or the 10 hours that I spent talking to you and your customers to learn what makes you tick? Today's episode is sponsored by our company, Sales
0: Schema. Sales Schema is a fractional new business team for marketing agencies and B2B service companies. And that's a fancy way of saying that we go out to the market on behalf of our clients to up meetings and keep the pipeline full no matter what's going on on their end. We do this through a proprietary approach, which we call relationship sales at scale. What makes this different is that instead of going in cold, we secure relationships by identifying and tastefully reaching out to the sorts of prospects that are already likely to talk to our clients based on personal and business commonalities as well as existing relationships. So if you'd like to learn more about what we're up to and schedule a free consultation, you can do that by going to salesschema.com. Again, that's saleschema.com. So today on the show, we are very excited to welcome Matthew Stibba. Matthew is a serial entrepreneur, marketing maven, writer, pilot, and wine enthusiast, but not necessarily in that order. Uh, He's created strategies and content campaigns for the likes of Microsoft, Google, LinkedIn, and HP, and he's contributed to Wired, Wired, Forbes, and Popular Science. He's the CEO of Articulate Marketing, which is a UK agency uh, specializing in the technology sector. Also, his geek credentials are strong. Previously, he was founder and CEO at Intelligent Games, which was a 70-person computer games company where he designed games for Lego and produced two uh, major titles based on Dune. He has his commercial pilot's license, an advanced wine diploma, like the movie Psalm, and previously he studied history at Oxford. So I had a, a blast uh, talking to Matthew. We we talked about all things geeky, all things related to history, what it was like interviewing Sergey Brin, parallels from his days at Wired, and interviewing you know tech entrepreneurs and others in that space and what he was able to take from that into the agency space in the process of growing his agency to something like 20 people over the course of a few years. Recurring theme on the show, but I think it was really great getting this from Matthew's perspective. We talked about the importance of focus and specialization and how really that was the secret ingredient to getting articulate to its level of growth. Uh, and, and we covered so much more. Um, and I think you're going to have a lot of fun uh, learning from, from Matthew and his journey. So without further ado, please give it up for Matthew Stibba.
1: Matthew, thanks for coming on the show. Hey, Dan, nice to be here. Thank you for having me.
0: Yeah, yeah, likewise. So there's a lot of different jumping off points. I think the thing that that I that I noticed in your background that's similar to mine is you you studied history and I I'm, I'm a history major as well. You at Oxford, a little a little bit bigger of a deal. I am really glad that I studied history. I think about history a lot. I tend to think historically like in anything that I that I'm doing. So I I just love to hear like how if at all does studying history affect you you running a business these days. Um,
1: well, yes. My tutor at Pembroke David Eastwood, Dr. Eastwood, I asked him once what he'd learned from history. And he said, don't start a land war in Asia and don't invade Russia in the winter. (laughs) You know, okay, that's not particularly helpful for running a marketing agency. I think the thing that I learned, Oxford has a peculiar way of teaching. They did when I was there in in the Dark Ages, where you you write your essay and you read it to a tutor, to one of the, the fellows, and then you have a discussion about it. There's several things going on there that I think are very much what I do today. One is kind of marshalling my arguments and doing my research and putting uh, a case, then making the best sort of narrative for it it, to somebody who probably knows much more about the topic than I do. And most marketers go into a client and the client is the expert in their business and the marketer is trying to learn and trying to look credible and persuasive. And then there's this, this whole interactive, defending your arguments, thinking on your feet, in the best possible interpretation of the world, c- word, creative BS, that that I think that there's a bit of marketing that's about finding the right way to express something that you don't fully understand. Mm-hmm-hmm. Yes, maybe. I, I think I'm doing market as a disservice there. I sometimes introduce yeah. myself by saying, I work in marketing, but don't tell my mother she thinks I play the piano in a brothel.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's 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 great. I think for, for me the historical thing has been helpful in figuring out just like, okay, we, we seem to be fooling ourselves about how much everything has changed because of bells and whistles and shiny objects when really we're dealing with the same, you know, underlying technology, the same Human psychological element that doesn't change a ton. It changes a little over time, but not a whole lot. So that's kind of like been my people take haven't
1: changed much in the last 40,000 years, right? I mean, right. You know, basic psychology, and there's quite a lot to be learned. Well, there's quite a lot to be learned from the past from reading sympathetically trying to understand people from the past with limited information, right? I mean, I I don't know who said it, but the past is uh, a different country. They do things differently there. You have to sort of go and empathetically understand why they did things. And then there's this sort of Machiavelli or Napoleon or whoever. There's something to be learned from these people. There's something about people's behavior, so, yes, I, I mean, uh, I'm, uh, it's not just the the process of history or the process of writing or the process of argumentation. There is also, I think, actually, this is a much more uh, valuable thing, this intuitive empathy, this desire to engage with the people who have a different viewpoint or you don't fully understand them or, you know, you can't talk to them because they're long dead. And to try and get inside their head and imaginatively understand their world and their motivations and their decisions and their actions, that is quite a powerful analogy to what what marketing is at its best. and with with that in mind, let's let's actually do that a little bit
0: for yourself. You know, if you could crawl back into the historical figure of Matthew, you know, fresh out of Oxford to where you are now running, running articulate. What was motivating you back then and how, how did you jump off into entrepreneurship and so on?
1: Well, I've always been an entrepreneur. I'm a child of entrepreneurs. So I was designing computer games when I was at university. That's how I paid my way. And indeed, it's how I got into Oxford because I rocked up for an interview and I spent half the interview talking about this dynamic mathematical model I had made of the Vietnam War for a game that I was designing. You know, somehow that impressed the, the interview panel. Um, I, whether whether I delivered on that impression, I don't know. But there was a, always has been a geek technical element to my career, whether it was at university or afterwards, where I actually ran a computer games company for 10 years. From that, I went into when I sold it in 2000, I had a couple of years of being a bit of a dilettante journalist. So I was writing for Wired and Popular Science and UK magazines that maybe your audience hasn't heard of. Again, there's the geek element, but I became a journalist. And off the back of that started articulate marketing, where I, I was using the same skills, the the writing, the interviewing, the imaginative understanding of other people's points of view and needs and requirements to, to write I mean, most of the early days of Articulate, it was a copywriting agency. So the first two clients I had, which looking back on it seems incredibly lucky, one was Microsoft and the other one was the Design Council, which is, was then a, a part of the UK government. So I had the British government and Microsoft as my first two marketing clients. But, you know, that was because of... The introduction from the journalism, so that was around two thousand two, two thousand three, and since then, articulate marketing all the way. So, writing, geeky, techy stuff, and a little bit of history all the way through.
0: Yeah, there are lots of interesting things to dig into there. I'd love to hear what it was like starting and selling a gaming company around 2000 because my, I mean, my nostalgic memories are like playing Doom and stuff from id Software, like Wolfenstein with my dad. And then I recently read Masters of Doom, which is really, I don't know if you know that book, but that's, it's about id Software. And that's sort of like those early Masters days of
1: doom. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. It's on the shelf just behind me. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I figured you um, might f- know it. Yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah,
1: one of the first um, things I did for Wired was well, it was originally an article, but it a- ended up being an infographic about how um, Pong invented the internet, and it was a, kind of the relationships between all these different games and all these different people, and how it and how they all joined up. And I, I, I bought that book to write to help with writing that article. Um, so there you go, bit of history, bit of computer games, bit of writing. How did I get into games? Well. In fact, I sold the games company in 2000. So I, I, I went through that Doom era, but uh, I I had got into it because I was interested in hi- historical war games when I was at school and university. And so the, the first couple of games I designed were very sort of nerdy, grognard war games, uh, various kinds. In the end, though, the, the games company evolved into a, a business that was mainly doing branded games for kids and sports games. So we did a lot of games for Lego. And I designed a game called Lego Loco, which I I still think is probably the best thing I've ever done. We did some golf games. We also did a couple of games based on the Dune books. There's been a bit of interest because of the recent film. So I've I've been doing one or two podcasts around that, if anyone's interested.
0: I I think the one thing that's interesting, kind of like thinking about PC games versus where we are now is I've played kind of recent indie games that are incredible. And it's like the technology, you know, all, all the visuals I think are nice, but it's one thing that's kind of like shown itself to be true. Again, thinking historically is that the story of the game and the the philosophy behind it can be powerful enough to make it relevant 30 years later or something. So I, I always find that interesting.
1: Games that I enjoy now are either very old. So I'm playing lots of sort of vintage arcade games or vintage PC or vintage strategy games, or they're very indie games. I love, for example, a Dark Room, Concerned Apes, Stardew Valley is the like a work of towering genius. I think that the mainstream games, if you can call them that, where you know they've got multi-million-pound budgets and dozens or hundreds of people working on them. I mean, I've got an Xbox uh series x before christmas and i I don't that's not where i play games i i I love really twine interactive fiction games are really it's a really exciting space because i think actually the best games come out of people one one or two people's brains and sort of they're iteratively evolved right and the the analogy is right civilization one i mean sid meyer just published a book which is probably why it's in my mind the most basic graphics ever but all of the gameplay elements of civilization were in civ 1 civilization 6 there's not much evolution in the gameplay there's lots and lots of 3d graphics and animations and sound effects so the budget must have been 10 20x but is it 10 20 times better game i don't think so yeah yeah i definitely agree and to go to
0: the agency side and this might be I might not stick the landing with this question but we talked about you know how thinking historically kind of could affect the the rest of what you're doing did the gaming thing affect how you interact with the players now the players being your clients like is there are there ways that you can incentivize certain behaviors in your clients or your prospects or employees you, that were influenced from from coming out of a gaming backgrounds?
1: Gamification. Mm. Not much room for gamification, I think, in B2B marketing. Maybe, mm. maybe I'm wrong. I think occasionally we do little interactive tools and quizzes and things. I think actually the biggest crossover from the games days to the marketing days is something else. It's about the commercial relationships. So when Intelligent Games got quite big... I spent most of my time talking to lawyers, right? So we were negotiating with Sony, with Lego, with Hasbro, with Electronic Arts, you know, book deals and things like that. They were they were quite complicated, you know. We weren't we weren't small, though. When I sold the business, there were seventy plus people in the in the studio, but you know, we weren't. Multinational, so I got a lot of confidence in sort of talking to you know, like talking to Lego's lawyer about like the terms and conditions and the royalty terms and things. And I think that that confidence of having done that meant that I was very happy and felt very sort of unabashed talking to Microsoft about doing some work for them. It didn't feel different for me. It's just like okay, you know, Sony, Microsoft, same same thing, right? And so I think I was very lucky that I had that exposure to working with big companies when I was too young to realize. Oh my god, I'm working with really big companies and it's really important. You know, it's right. just like that was that was normal for me in my 20s. I think a little bit of confidence helps a lot in business.
0: Yeah, always for sure. And and with that to kind of go from, you know, you working in journalism to starting the agency, how, how did it, how did that come about? Like what what was it that made it click that all these different paths that you can probably go down as a journalist? Why was the agency path the one that that seemed most compelling? As a quick break, I wanted to let you know about our newest video training, how to take charge of your agency's future revenue. By the end of this training, you're going to learn how we get two to five qualified appointments every week using tasteful and highly targeted email outreach. That might not sound like a lot, but once you understand the outreach napkin math, you're going to learn how this can lead to massive scale for your agency or B2B service company. In addition to that, you're going to learn the six steps for successful outreach campaigns based on everything that we've learned from working with more than 100 agencies since 2014. You're going to get the complete agency outreach tech stack so you understand the right tools for getting the right results, and you're going to see agency-to-brand email examples and get inspiration from high-converting campaigns. So to get this 30-minute training, all you need to do is go to saleschema.com slash take charge. Again, that's saleschema.com slash take charge.
1: Pure naked greed. I I love being a, a, a journalist in part. I got to do some amazing things. You know, when you write for Popular Science or Wired and you ring somebody up and say, look, I'm doing an article about X, they go, yeah, let me just put you through to Mr. Musk. Yeah. Whereas when you're just like a civilian, you did that, who the hell are you? Uh, so I, I, I interviewed Sergey Brin at Google. I spent a day in at NASA in Houston flying the space shuttle simulator there. I have a pilot's license. And so that was like worldwide. Classic happy thing for Matthew to go and do, and all of this was because I was a journalist. I just I was using the journalism as an excuse to go and talk to people and do things I found interesting, but it didn't pay very well. Less than the government and Microsoft paid quite a lot more, and there was a, also slightly difference in the relationship because if you if you're a freelance journalist, and maybe this has changed now. If when I was a freelance journalist, I was constantly having to pitch ideas. So you spend an awful lot of time coming up with ideas that you never get to write. And that's very frustrating. It's time consuming. And then you get maybe paid so much, so much per word for writing them. Whereas with the, when I started dealing with commercial clients as a writer, they really wanted what I was doing. They were really easy to deal with. And they paid three or four times as much per word. And I didn't have to invent five things to get to write one thing. They came to me and said, hey, do you want to do this? You know, book, do you want to do this article? Do you want to do this? I was like, yeah, great. I think if I can step back from that a little bit, what drove me as a, as a freelance journalist is the same thing that drove me as a, as a freelance marketing copywriter in the early days. I'm just naturally curious about things. I just love talking to people about tech. So, you know, if I was writing stuff for Microsoft and interviewing people for Microsoft, that, that was as interesting for me. It wasn't that I want, I, there wasn't a, an artificial divide with, between this is commercial and this is journalism. This is, you know, this is boring and this is interesting. It was all equally fascinating, but just significantly better paid and easier to do. <laughs> yeah. Sorry if that's a little bit on the nose. No, no, that, that, that makes a that's lot. That makes started. a lot of sense.
0: So you you know you mentioned you interviewed Sergey Brin and my guess is you've worked with some, some pretty, pretty smart people in, in these big companies and maybe there's other people you interviewed. Any parallels that you've seen between them? Any, anything that jumps out at you for, or, or things that you've learned from, from interviewing?
1: I think anyone who's interviewed, done interviewing regularly, will perhaps this will resonate. If somebody is genuinely an expert in their field, really genuinely clever and well-versed in it, they have the, this amazing ability to communicate what they know in a way that the person who's listening understands. So the, to kind of calibrate and tune, detune, f- filter the message correctly. It's a skill that marketers need, by the way. It's a skill that writers need, and conversely, um, I, I, I was it Hemingway who said every good writer needs an impeccable bullshit detector. People who bluster and use long words and complicate things, often they're doing that to disguise their own sort of inadequacies or the thing they don't know. I've noticed that, and that's been true when I've been talking to, you know, interviewing clients or doing case study interviews or, you know, talking to people about technology. It's just such a delight to talk to somebody who knows what they're doing, what they're talking about. And I'll give you one example of this that is the the, the epitome of what I'm talking about. So used to run write a blog for um Forbes magazine about aviation and space because of being a pilot and being into space and I interviewed for that Dr. Franklin Chang Diaz who has been into space seven times. He's an astronaut, so he's an astronaut. And now he runs a company that makes plasma rocket engines. So he's also a rocket scientist, right? I mean, this he's got like, like, like five PhDs. He's the cleverest man, genuinely the cleverest man I have ever in, met in my entire life. And he was explaining to me how his ion engine would help human beings or probes get to Mars. And it's complicated, right? Complicated rocket technology, complicated space, complicated planetary things and Mars. Over the phone, he explained it to me and I understood at my level what he was telling me. And I just think that's extraordinary. He was able to go brain the size of a planet, but I'm going to compress and translate this information for this, this person who doesn't really have an engineering background and doesn't really understand space technology very much. That's an amazing talent. And the ability to do that is also at the heart of marketing, actually, at least certainly the kind of content inbound marketing that we're trying to do. We have to go into companies and act as an ambassador. You know, you you tell us your stuff and what you're good at and what you know, and we're going to turn around and communicate it to the people who are interested in that, who are going to find that useful, relevant, informative. But we have to translate it into a format they find engaging, useful understandable um yeah so
0: that. yeah that's that makes a lot of sense and and I think getting to the agency now just just so people have context can you talk a little bit about what the work you're doing looks like you know the sorts of companies you're working with how many how many people you have with you these days and so on
1: yeah so I've, I've been talking earlier about the early days of the agency when it was mostly me and then me plus one or two other people um today the agency' is just under 20 we've got 19. We are mostly writers, um, some designers and website people. So we are HubSpot Diamond partner. We help B2B technology companies express themselves, find their difference engine, communicate what they're good at, thought leadership, and so on. We build websites and content to help with that, that storytelling, that messaging, that uh, lead capture. So that, that's articulate marketing. And I'm sure that that model of being a, you know, inbound content driven HubSpot agency is going to be familiar to a lot of people that are listening.
0: Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. And you kind of come from a different an interesting angle where I think a lot of people that start agencies are, you know, getting their cousin who has like a gas station to hire them and then they're like working their way up to Texaco or whatever, Microsoft. And you kind of did, did the reverse of that. So, yeah. After all these years, what what's your feeling on that? Like how much do you enjoy working with a giant organization versus a startup and how, how do you hmm. feel about the clients you work with? Well,
1: yeah, so we have Multinational clients. We work for Dell Technologies, Hewlett-Packard Enterprise, Microsoft, people like that at one end of the spectrum. And our smallest client is three people, <laughs> which is kind of weird. Um, size isn't, you know, we're never going to be a McCann Ericsson or something. We're not trying to be, you know, the agency of record for multinationals. So when you actually take that off the table, what what seems to happen with the very large companies is we tend to be dealing with one or two people or a small department. In a weird way, we deal with the UK subsidiaries of large American corporations. The relationship between Articulate and a three-person startup and the relationship between Articulate and a marketing team of three people that is selling you know, Azure to IT specialists or you know, Microsoft Project there's it, it, actually the same kind of thing. It's they're almost like a little tribe or a little little village inside the big empire of Microsoft, and, and, and the relationship building work you have to do is is very similar. Although the Microsoft people tend to have deeper pockets.
0: Yeah, yeah, exactly. So it's kind of kind of a version of the same thing, but there's there's obviously different work and different undertaking that goes into winning the business and and dealing with it and everything. Yeah.
1: Well, winning the business with multinationals, in my experience, has always been a case of building a relationship with somebody, understanding that person's particular need. And it's, you know, very often the case that agency of record X just yeah. doesn't really understand the thing I have to do. And I just have to, I'm constantly sending their work back because it's not being well-written. They don't really understand anything about it. It's being done by junior people. And I'd much rather work with Articulate because you've got clever people who do understand it. and You, you, you work in our niche and you get it. So I'd, I'd rather have a small agency who gets us than the most junior person in the local outfit of the multinational agency that is signed up at Redmond or, you know, palo alto right. or whatever it's finding it's finding that relationship and that need and then servicing it and getting that champion to go to the purchasing team and say just put these guys on the roster because i they're the only people that can do this thing for me that's how you get because you know in big companies, purchasing departments typically are the barriers to entry. Oh well, we do everything with you know big agency, so we don't need another copywriter. We don't need another small yeah. agency, and and you've got to have somebody on the inside working the angle for you.
0: Yeah, yeah, I think that that'll be really useful to people, and and I think part of that that you know what makes what you guys do special and and what makes this niche so interesting is that how it's just how opaque B two B technology is. We had a guest on the show, and I apologize to this guest because I forgot exactly who it was. But they said one of their interview questions for you know new marketers that they hire, they're actually in the data space, is name a piece of technology that you can't find in a Best Buy. So it's it's just an incredibly opaque space. So I, I guess with that in mind, one question I have is like, what technology in the B two B space that people might not know about do you find interesting? What's sort of uh, yeah, what's what sparks your your team's interest these days that
1: you can talk about? I'm going to put a pin in that and I'll answer that question. Sure, and yeah. That's a challenging question. Our interview question is, what are you geeking out about at the moment? Sure. We, we put that on our application form because we're, we're interested in people who go deep into something. We don't really care what it is, yeah. but we want to see some evidence of sort of just not skimming the surface. Okay. Really, the thing that we are grappling with at the moment and for the last year or so is... The interrelationship between how we manage our own internal projects and how we communicate project management to clients, right? Yeah. Because clients, if you throw Asana or you know, we use ClickUp, but you know some big project management kind of tool, that's just going to blow melt most of our clients' minds. They haven't got the time; they're, they're busy doing other things. It's not that they they if they had to figure it out, they would. So, how do you translate that? What information do they need out of project management? What information what do we need them to know, do, and act? So, so that's one thing. So in terms of the the tools that we like that I would mention, we're very interested in, in exploring the outer edges of ClickUp and what it can do. But for the client-facing bit, we found that Notion is very Good for clients. You can do, you know, it doesn't put so much structure on how you present information. And we can build templates and extranets and portals for clients to communicate with them. I think notion is my absolute favorite bit of tech at the moment. The the, the related thing about ClickUp is we don't use timesheets. So an, I think relatively unusual. I think so 70 80% of agencies in the UK do use timesheets and the rest do something else. So we, we have a points pricing model and we have a points model for logging activity and kind of a- output from people in the agency. And there are lots of reasons for that, but we've been a remote working agency forever. So you can't watch people type. You can't see if they're in the office or not. You can't sort of measure the effort That they spend, and and I have a fairly passionate belief that timesheets are really just a a grotesque lie and a con trick. Right? I mean, I I can't remember what I had for breakfast today. How am I going to remember what I, how much time I spent yesterday working for client X or client Y? So, timesheets not ideal. So we we've been working really hard in ClickUp to figure out how to do points reporting, points planning, workload planning, um, and and sprint planning. And that, that's an ongoing journey, but it's an interesting one. Yeah.
0: And the other problem with measuring time is like, how do you decide what is work and what is time spent? Like, we're not coal miners. We're all knowledge workers here. So, it, you know, you you and I are in CEO positions. If we're thinking about a hard business problem, you know, over lunch or or just sitting at the desk and then reading a book about something and then thinking about how that applies to your particular problem, that's the most compelling and useful work you could think of
1: but it doesn't fall into a timesheet situation. You know, what does that mean? <laughs> yeah, right. So, I, you know, I mean, I have I have all kinds of epiphanies when I'm having a shower or having a long bath. And I mean, you know, I, I'm not going to like log down like, you know, 15 minutes epiphany in the shower. Right. And, 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 and does that time reflect the value that I've delivered for having that idea? If I come up with a, you know, if, I mean, reduce this to the most absurd example. If I come up with a tagline for your website, for your business that is, encapsulates what you do perfectly. And it's just a work of, you know, it's just spot on and you use it. But it just popped into my head while I was having a shower. Are you paying for the the five minutes of the shower? Or are you paying for the 30 years of experience that right. allowed it's me like to get that. there? All the 10 hours that I spent talking to you and your customers to learn what makes you tick. It's like the I, Picasso I said,
0: story, you know, the Picasso at the cafe. You heard that one? no. It, it might be apocryphal, but the story is Picasso was at a cafe scribbling some art on a, on a napkin or something, had lunch with a friend. He gets up to leave. He's crumpling it up to throw it away. A woman near him knows it's Picasso and says, you know, can I can I have what you drew? And Picasso says, sure, it'll be, I don't know how much, but he's like, it'll be $50,000 if you want this. He's like, and she's like, but that just took you,
1: you know, five minutes over lunch. And he said, no, this took me 50 years. Yeah. I, I had a sim- similar story, actually, I, if I remember rightly, Nicholas Negroponte, who was who used to write a, a column on Wired and he used to run the MIT Media Lab, had his laptop stolen and he, the insurance people said, well, how much was it worth? And he said about three million pounds or three million dollars because it had all his articles and his thoughts and stuff. And obviously, he had it backed up. But, you know, the physical value of that laptop was thousands of dollars, but the, the material in it was something very, very different. I, I often find that when you when you look when you're able to get that different perspective on something, where's the value in a, a doodle by Picasso? It's not the lifetime of experience that got there. It's also the fact that it's got his name on it, and therefore they can take it and sell it. It's, it's worth nothing to him, but it's worth something to you. You know, in, in an agency situation where there's knowledge, know-how, experience, skill, kind of just like knowing what not to do. Like, don't do that because it doesn't work and it's stupid. How do you value that in terms of hours? I, by analogy, I, a, a pal of mine is Queen's is a very senior barrister, lawyer in the UK, and he he advises, you know, if you if you want to get planning permission in the UK to build a nuclear power station or a shopping mall or something, you know, you probably rock up and spend a couple of hours with Tim and he'll tell you, you know, if you want to do this and apply like this and do that. Now, that couple of hours of just expert, expert advice might be worth millions of pounds to you, yeah, because if you get it wrong, you don't get permission to do the thing you want. That's just a big, big, big thing. And he charges by the hour. I mean he charges a lot by the hour, but he charges by the hour. And I also often think you know he would be much better off charging some sort of value <laughs> value related fee. So th- this is sort of slightly one of the reasons also why we don't do timesheets is is you as a client don't really care how long it took us to do. You as a client care about the, the value it creates for you, you know, amount of effort it takes you to review and approve it, the quality. And in a way, the moment you take out the time factor, our interests are very much aligned. It's in my interest to get the work done by my team right first time, doesn't need a lot of editing, client's happy with it, goes out and does the business in terms of, for example, getting SEO traffic or conversions. Right. Yeah. Those are all things because that's what I get. If, if, if I don't do those things, I'm not getting paid by you. Whereas if I'm just charging you by the hour, yeah, I'll put a junior person on it. Yeah, it takes me takes some 20 hours to do it. The longer it takes, them, the more work it creates, the more f- rounds of revision, the more feedback. Great. I'm just making more money out of that. And so our interests as clients and agency are completely disaligned at that point because you want to get the thing done and get, get value out of it. And I just want you to keep giving me hourly rates.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. And I think like as you keep going down that road towards aligning interest, then you're just getting to this point where everyone's just kind of intertwined and everybody has equity and everyone else, which is which is I think a model that you you tend to see more and more with, with agencies. One question that that I'd love to know is just kind of just the the blocking and tackling of building the agency. I guess that's not a good metaphor for somebody that's not into American football, but or somebody in the UK. But <laughs> I um, understood. I understood. Just, fake. It's a you've sports. Dealt, metaphor, you've dealt yeah. with enough enough Americans yeah. at this point, probably. So, w- with that, you know, how, what have you done to, to grow the agency from going from you as as the, the the journalist, the sole person, to twenty people? What did that look like? What were some of those channels you you used to to grow it?
1: Well, we, we've eaten our own dog food in terms of inbound marketing grew the audience of the website and the traffic and the conversion. So more than half of our business comes inbound at the risk of showing some vulnerability and admitting some mistakes. I'll tell you what didn't work. Please. Nobody Um, does that. (laughs) And it's always useful to people. Yeah. So. A few years ago, uh, we we went through the, right, we want to do HubSpot. So we kind of grew a bit and learned how to do that and to complement the content, copywriting and, and so on. And we thought we would take the next step on from copywriting and HubSpot to let's do social media, video production, PPC, website development, graphic design, you know, let's be a, quotes, full service marketing agency. Big mistake. And I should have remembered the advice of my editor at Wired, if you try to write well about everything, you will write badly about everything. You cannot be strong everywhere. You can only be strong by focusing. So the last 18 months, two years, we've actually been rather ruthlessly cutting out services and being really much more explicit about what we don't do. You know, we we don't do PR, we don't do events, we don't do PPC, we don't do video. And if you're clear with prospects and clients about that, sometimes that can be very empowering for everybody. It's like, yeah, we're not going to do that for you. But look, here's, here's another company that can do that bit. We're happy to work with them. We're not going to steal their lunch. They're not going to come after us. You know, If you want videos, go talk to these people. But we, this is what we do do really, really, really well. I'm, I'm fascinated by I think it's Blair or Enzo, it might have been David C. Baker, who talk about agencies having two rooms. They have a strategy room and a, they call it, he calls it a delivery room, which is a slightly uncomfortable phrase. So let's say a, a strategy room and a creative room. Mm-hmm where people come into the agency where they circulate around the agency where they leave the agency that's really really interesting and i i think i think articulate's an agency now uh, has has three rooms and three doors and you know but working that out kind of like we're not interested in doing these other things but you know you can come in through the strategy door you can come in through the website door you can come in through the content door and we can circulate you into some of the other rooms depending on what you're interested in yeah. I'm. I'm not necessarily saying Steve Jobs was. He was not not particularly a, a nice person. I'm not sure I would have liked him very much. But he he was very very good at Apple. Of going, yeah, okay, we're not doing cameras. We're not doing scanners. We're not doing printers. We're not doing you know just like we're not doing the message pad. We're not in Newton. Apple Newton's go. You know, just like ruthlessly culling things. We're going to do this really really well, and one new thing every couple of years. Yeah. I think that's a really good lesson for all of us, and I wish I'd, I wish I'd known that at the beginning. Yeah,
0: yeah, and, and I think I remember back when I was trying to figure out what kind of company I wanted to start, and this would have been 2014. And I'd always heard versions of that, but sometimes you have to, you it has to just click in the right way for you to actually figure out what's. Focus and what's not. I used to say niching, but I think it's bigger than niching. It's specialization. And for me, it was it was at this conference. And Noah Kagan, who's the the guy behind AppSumo, was speaking, and he made the point that look, like every company started with focusing. I think he said niching, but he's you know Facebook with colleges, Amazon with books, IBM with calculators. He's like, what makes you think that you're going to be the exception to this? So that's that's where it kind of clicked. Yeah,
1: there's a really interesting book by uh, Michael Treacy, Double Digit Growth, which talks about how when you've found your niche that's working, how you incrementally expand from that. And I've I've only read that last year and I thought that was quite helpful because some some people, some companies are happy to stay small, stay in a particular niche. Some companies want to grow and it doesn't necessarily mean you have to only do the thing you did when you started. The the other thing I'd recommend is... Sonia Marciano has a video on Vimeo something about strategy and value but if you Google, if you look up Sonia Marciano on vimeo.com you'll probably yeah. find it and she just talks about how companies can really be very very precise and focused about who their customers are what their unique value is and she has this lovely phrase about the things you know you might be really really good at Websites and copywriting. And in order to sell to certain companies, you also have to do a bit of social media. But it's not your core thing, but you just need to tick that box. And she calls that sock puppeting. So that there's yeah. not only kind of how you incrementally grow and evolve, but also kind of what is genuinely differentiating. And what is something you just have to have in order to not be rejected, but it's not the thing you build your life on.
0: Yeah. So the, these yeah. these
1: are all sort of difficult choices to make. And it's painful, as I did, to learn PPC, not for us, videos, right. not for us. You know, having invested quite a lot of time, effort, money into trying to build bits of those business.
0: Yeah, that that makes that's really interesting. We'll try to track that down and get it get it linked up. And yeah, the way I've always thought about it is that anybody that's kind of expanded successfully, they're just doing these little jumps and not not these giant leaps. And and I'll, I really like that that concept where a lot of the stuff is window dressing, yeah, or table stakes. Like you need to have a business card, but it's not the thing that's going to make or break your business unless you don't have the business card at all, right? So, when
1: was the last time you gave anyone a business card? By the way. It's
0: been a long time, you know, especially given the last couple of years. Uh, I guess it was the conference this summer. Yeah, I,
1: I'm I, I'm really interested to know what the the new. I mean, is it a LinkedIn handshake? I don't know. Something there's but some, there's, there's something missing in in the world of business that needs to replace the "Here's my card" moment.
0: Yeah. I'm not sure what the new ritual should be, but all I know is like, you better have a few because there could be that situation where you get somebody that's older school and it could be an opportunity. And if you don't have it, then that's the problem, right? So that's table stakes, I guess, something like that. To, to shift gears a little bit, one thing that's that's really interesting about your agency is that you're, you're a B Corp. Can you talk a little bit about what a B Corp is? And kind of for those that don't know, I know from a very high vague level and and why you've, you've gone in that direction and kind of what it's meant for the agency.
1: To be a B Corp is to sign up to the idea that business can be a force for good. So you are trying to run the business in a, it's not only in an ethical way, but actually to make be a benefit. And the B and B Corp stands for benefit, to be a benefit to society, a benefit to the planet, a benefit to the stakeholders, I mean, employees being the primary stakeholder, it doesn't mean and i really want to emphasize this that you have to be a charity you know you it's a business it's a corporation you are there to m- make money now some b corps are more purpose driven than others articulate is very much we're a profit driven business i have a C- cfo who you know cracks the whip right i know what margins we're trying to aim for i know what our growth rate needs to be we're in business but the b corp framework And there's an assessment you can do online for free to to test where you you are today. It gives you a, a framework for looking at your environmental impact. It gives you a framework for looking at your stakeholders and community impact, a framework for looking at how you work with your stakeholders, your employees. When you become a B Corp, you, you complete that assessment and you are objectively audited by B Corp against that standard and you are given a score. So it's not just, you know, greenwashing. It's not just like, yeah, we're, we're really nice. We're nice people. We're good to our employees. You know, we're, we're, we, we hug panda bears. You act, To become a B Corp, you have to be audited. So it also has the benefit, the value of being able to say to your clients and your em- prospective employees, this is what we stand for. This is what we do. We actually have a, uh, you know, we've been tested and measured against this standard. And so I've, I, I, on a very trivial level, we have been signed up by multinational clients and they send this big, you know, they've got their uh, corporate social responsibility agenda. So they send a CSR survey and we just go right at the top, we're a B Corp. Look at our, our thing done right because we we're, we're going to be a, probably at a higher standard than any of their suppliers uh, or indeed most most multinationals it has you know an immediate benefit of being able to tick the the supply chain box second thing we've had a few clients who are also b corps and one of the things that you're trying to do as a b corp is manage your supply chain ethically so they want a marketing agency that's a b corp we had one particular example a couple of years ago where they wanted to onboard with HubSpot. They wanted to onboard with um, a marketing agency that was a B Corp. We were the only HubSpot agency that was a B Corp. They had to use us, and bless them, you know. And it was a nice deal for us. Not many deals are like that, but it's it's a plus point. We certainly have clients where they are aspiring to be B Corps, or they want to be. You know, they also want to be a force for good in their in their world, and that so it's a little bit of a plus, a differentiator for us. The third benefit is when you're hiring people, the people I want to employ want to work in a company that has principles. They want to work in a company that, you know, actually does what it says it does. And so B Corp is one way of communicating that very clearly to people. Uh, we have others. So there's a UK scheme called Investors in People, and we're a certified investors in people company. So we, we have we meet certain HR standards and we're audited for that. We're also a living wage employer. There's a living wage foundation in the UK. So we, we we sign up to that standard. So there's no unpaid interns at Articulate, and everyone gets paid at least a living wage. But you know, actually everyone's above that rate at Articulate. And a few other things. So these are these external objective measures of how you treat people how you treat the environment how you, how you work with communities i think they're they're very powerful for differentiation they're very powerful for recruitment and i wouldn't want to work at a company that wasn't a b corp so you know it sort of reflects my my intention my values as well
0: yeah, that makes sense. And is there is there a particular stand that's unique to you that you've sort of taken on in, in this capacity, or is it just kind of you know taking care of your employees and all the good stuff that you should be doing anyway, and so on?
1: But it's 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 interesting. It's it's B Corp is there's a score you have to be over a certain threshold, and I think it's seventy five on a range that goes up to about one hundred and twenty. So you can't be a B Corp unless you are there, and you can't get to that score unless you're sort of basically good in the main, you know, the the supply chain, employees, stakeholders, environment, community, right? So you you have to be at a minimum standard. Where we have scored very highly is in the relationship to our employees because of the other things I mentioned around training and minimum wage and things. But other companies probably score higher on community or outcomes. Is this something that we've specially done? When we started the process in 2018, our score was about 35, and it's about 95 now. So it was a journey for us. So it also served as a way of sort of testing and measuring and uh, providing yardsticks for our own progress and kind of, okay, the next thing we have to do is work on this. And the next thing we have to do is work on this. It took us 18 months to go through that whole program. So it, it actually helped us elevate you know, our practices across the, across the whole company. The rare thing that we do, it's not unique, but it's unusual in a company in our size, is that we have a chief happiness officer. And we have that because we've always been remote working. So the kind of culture and the pastoral care and and so on has been very important to us. Some of those things happen automatically in an office or they happen if you have an HR person. And we didn't. So we we, we didn't hire her as a chief happiness officer, but we created the role and moved her into it. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Like what's, what
0: are the sort of things you've learned that need to be there uh, in a remote environment and what's, what's that person doing day-to-day to you know improve morale and so on?
1: Yeah, so uh, we learned long before COVID, Slack plus Zoom does not mean you're all set for remote working, right? It's not about the tools. So there's some fundamental things. Measuring output rather than input. We talked about points earlier. Being conscious around kind of the, the fact that some of the things that, you you know, just happen automatically in an office don't happen automatically when you work remotely. So, you know, just keeping an eye on people being, I, I say pastoral care, but just like checking in with them, being sort of like a nice person and making sure they're OK, helping people build their own sort of social lives and, and hinterland outside work. In in the games company, everyone used to go down the pub every evening. So where were your friends? They were in the office. You went out with them in the evening. Well, you can't do that if half your company is in Scotland and half of the company is in Europe. They're they're meeting together. The the, the other thing that we used to do BC before COVID was we used to have regular in-person meetings. We, We are, like everybody at the moment, experimenting constantly with ways to do that remotely. But we probably will restart that in April or May. And I would I would make a final point on this, this remote working thing. It costs us more money to be remote working than it we would pay if we had an office. Yeah. So it isn't about saving money. And I think a lot of people are getting, I've just come off another call with a client. A lot of people are getting v- about this, very excited. Oh, you know, okay, remote working means we can, you know, get rid of half our office space and save all this money. Yeah, but you're gonna have to spend that on culture and events and meetings and HR and chief happiness officers and thinking harder about how you recruit people and how you retain people and what you how you train them and you know, being a B Corp and all these yeah. all this other stuff has to happen to make remote working successful, as opposed to just a thing that you're forced to do because of this wretched pandemic. So, uh, you know, a conscious effort to make it work is required.
0: Yeah, I think that's a really good point and something to to keep in mind. I know you have a blog. Can you talk a little bit about that and what you like to write about and how people can follow what you're up to and so on?
1: Sure. There are two. One is on Articulate Marketing, where there's a blog and a series of webinars. Most of the webinars are me, some of the blog articles there. So there's a lot of stuff there about marketing. But my blog, my personal blog, where I talk about how I think about leadership and management and geeky stuff about Lego is on geekboss.com. So if people have heard any of the things I've been talking about, I talk more about them on geekboss.com. It's a
0: great name. I can't believe you got the the domain. That's awesome.
1: (laughs) I was driving through Romania with my wife and uh, she was driving and we were going sort of north of Ploesht up to Yash. And I was on my phone and I, and I was just doing something on Slack. And I had built this, this integration using a Somebody had published an API to Zork, right? So you could play the Zork text adventure game in Slack. And I had done that integration and hacked it. So my colleagues and I were, were playing Zork in Slack. So I was doing this and I was explaining to my wife, who's not particularly geeky, gamey or interested in tech, what I had done and how how you know it had an API and there was Zork interpretation language and what Zork was and all of this stuff. And she said, Matthew, you're such a geek boss. <laughs> right. Yeah. She's she's Romanian. She's very direct like that. And I thought, oh, Geek Boss, that's a good name. So I immediately on my phone went to the domain registry and I I, I bought geekboss.com just on the back of that conversation. And the whole of the rest of the blog happened just because of a random chat in a car. (laughs) But it is now the place where I talk about geek things, gaming things, and being a manager and a leader in what I hope is a, a sort of a geeky, friendly way.
0: Yeah, that's that's great. I can't believe that that wasn't taken, but but good on you. And we'll we'll get that all linked up, Matthew. This is this is a lot of fun. I feel like we could do another three of these on different topics involved in technology, history, running an agency. We didn't even talk about you flying planes around or the fact that you're you're a SOM level uh, a wine expert. So we'll we'll have to get you back on the show. I'd be delighted, Dan. It's been a great pleasure. Thank you for having me. Yeah, likewise thanks for listening to this episode. Again, today's episode is sponsored by our company, Sales Schema. Sales Schema helps agencies and B2B service companies build a reliable business development system through tasteful and targeted outreach. To learn more about us and check out our latest video training, again, you can go to saleschema.com slash take charge. Again, that's saleschema.com slash take charge.